When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Documentary and One from RTE in Ireland. A quick note to say that the Documentary and One is now available for sponsorship, both on radio and podcast. If you're interested, email documentaries at rte.ie for more information. And now to today's story. This is Nicolas Cruz Hernandez still fighting. 14-8, a great last round for Wayne McCullough. Their names are now familiar to us. Michael Carruth and Wayne McCullough. Another silver from Belfast, Wayne McCullough. And a bell goes, Michael Carruth, unbelievable performance. The two boxers who won gold and silver at the Barcelona Olympics in 1992. The Cuban has walked over to the Irish corner. But listen again to the commentaries and there's another name running throughout. That of one of the Irish coaches, a tall, broad-shouldered black man from Cuba. Well, Nicholas Cruz just having a good look at that eye. Nicholas Cruz Hernandez. And Nicholas Cruz Hernandez talking to the Cuban. No doubt of it. In Cubana Spanish, very shortly now we'll have the result. The boxing wins in Barcelona were memorable, all right. But for Nicholas himself, it was the homecoming to Dublin Airport that was really special. I just said, well, there will be Michael's family there at the airport and maybe a few friends. Inside the terminal, a good-natured crowd of about 2,000 had been waiting patiently for several hours. I started seeing a lot of guardies and I said, what's going on here? At last, just after 2am, the two medal winners made an appearance on the balcony. And then they said, the whole airport was jammed, was people everywhere. I thought there was going to be a few in it this morning. The support's unbelievable. Just like to say thanks to everybody. The crowd demanded to hear from the boxing coach who led the Irish boxers to success. People that were there in the Olympic giving us a big boost. Ireland had the biggest crowd there in the Olympic boxing stadium. The Cuban was already being called an honorary Irishman. Dublin Airport again. This time over 20 years after that manic homecoming in arrivals. This time, Nicholas is in departures, about to fly home to Cuba. Hello, Nicholas. I didn't check in my bag yet. No. And he's again with some of the Irish boxing fraternity. He's going home on a trip that he never thought he'd make, and he's also travelling because of an extraordinary promise. And he's travelling with three friends from boxing in Mayo, Michal O'Connell, Joe Lavelle and Jerry Coyle from Gisala Boxing Club. The most westerly club in Ireland, with 95 All-Ireland titles, but there's only about... 39 to 42 houses in the village. This man, Nicholas Cruz, helped us so much. And the kids ask below where is he from? Black Sod. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he says, I'm from Black Sod. <laughs> On the way down to the gate, completely by chance, the Mayo men bump into another boxing coach. We won the gold medal, you know, in the European Championships. So boxing. From the juniors and the cadets. Yeah. In fact, along with Nicholas, he's another of Ireland's Olympic gold medal boxing trainers. He's Pete Taylor. I had a girl over there, Shannon. Katie Taylor's father, who coached her for the 2012 Olympics. He talks about Nicholas. I knew Nicholas when Katie was young and she used to go out to squat training with him. 
brilliant coach. And I'm sure a brilliant coach and a gentleman as well. Then he refers to the fact that despite his skills, Nicholas couldn't get a job in boxing here at one point and ended up living in the boxing stadium and sweeping the floors there. I think he was treated very badly, to tell you the truth, you know, and he should have been still been national coach. I think he was treated very badly. Whether he was treated badly or not is disputed by the boxing authorities, but there's a connection between that difficult time in Nicholas's life and today in the airport. Nicholas slumped into depression then and has struggled with it over the years. So much so that on one occasion he ended up calling one of the Mayo men here today, Jerry Coyle. I made him a promise that we'd bring him to Cuba today if he went to get help and get treatment and made a promise to the man and when he got back there, we kept that promise. So, Nicholas is heading back to his home country for the first time in years because of a deal he made with the three Mayo men. And the Mayo men are heading to Cuba today with Nicholas because they're his friends, but also because what he's done for Irish boxing, small clubs and national teams. Nicholas himself is feeling a bunch of emotions about the trip. Very excited, just overwhelmed and, I don't know, tense in a way. Like Sometimes thinking that anything can go wrong and they don't want it to go wrong, you know, just want it to go perfect and that's it. Well, Nicholas, we're nearly here. You can see the ground outside in Cuba. What do you think? The trip to Cuba is being recorded on his phone by Jerry Coyle. Very uh, tight, holding the motions close to the chest. Well, we're out on the ground here at uh, Havana Airport. Very hot, very humid, nice. I can hear the thunder here in the background. Looks like we're going to have more rain. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. The rainy season is starting and now we have rain everywhere. And cats and dogs expect cats and dogs (laughs) in the rain. Despite the rainy season, the river near Nicholas's old family farm in the west of Cuba is still low enough to wade across. <laughs> Nicholas is warning the Mayo man about stones. Well, the stones are sore, but they're all right. This is where one of Ireland's greatest boxing coaches spent his childhood in the 1960s. And life for his family here in rural Cuba was fairly basic was a wooden house with a thatched roof. There was no electricity in that area there, you know. For his friends from Mayo, though, the life he told them about on the farm had some things in common with their own in the west of Ireland. It reminds me of home long ago when you'd hear the rooster crowing outside when you wake up in the morning. At the time, we'd be bringing eggs to the shop and selling them instead of going and buying them from the shop. One thing, of course, the Mayo men don't recall from the west of Ireland is cutting coconut. The food is is remarkably so fresh. It's amazing the quality, it's amazing the taste. When he began to transform the Irish boxing team into real Olympic medal contenders, Nicholas Cruz didn't just talk to them about their physical work. 
he got them to develop their mental skills too. And that understanding of the power of the human mind was made brutally apparent to him as a child. He saw at close hand the mental torments of his adult brother. While showing his three friends from Mayo around the family farm, Nicholas comes to what appears to be a concrete bunker, now overgrown with plants. It was built for your brother, who was very sick. This was a place to restrain his brother, who periodically suffered from seizures and became extremely violent. There's a barred door and a slot in the wall. And that was the hatch for feeding him? Yes, we had a metal tray and uh, we put the food through here. You don't put your hand in there or anything because it will be aggressive and it may just pull your hand or whatever. His brother qualified as an engineer but ended up in a psychiatric hospital in Havana, 160 kilometres away. Nicholas's mother often made the journey to see her son and this was such a strain on the family that his father lobbied the authorities to allow them to bring their son back home and care for him on the farm. Sometimes you hear him talking and speaking in English there or a few words in French because he was, he was very well educated and then uh, whenever he was fine he'll be you know, talking to you, it'll be, everything will be okay. The family were never very sure of what ailed Nicholas's brother. One theory was that he had been given a potion by a spurned woman. Those years there used to be a lot of that here, you know, a lot of people that came from Africa and they knew a lot of remedies like they do in Haiti, you know, they can destroy your brain and make you a zombie out of different preparations. So they said that this woman fell in love with him, you know, because he was a very elegant man. He was very, besides his education, he was a very elegant man. He used to go partying and everything. And then she said, if you don't marry me, you won't marry anybody else. So, and whatever was given him to drink, I didn't know, that's what destroyed his brain. Nicholas's brother's illness wasn't the only source of stress at home when he was a child. There was also his father. My dad was the one who we all fear in the house. He couldn't show any of his weaknesses and hugging this and all that, you know. We was just like, come on there and do this, and you, you know, tough. It was all like tough. And nowadays there's a lot of hogging and tendering with the kids and everything. I didn't get any of that. He was just tough going, you know. That tough upbringing by his father stood to Nicholas during his army service. Among the military trainers was a group of Vietnamese communists, fresh from their victory over the United States. I was fit enough. I was selected in a special group to go up to the mountain to do training and guerrilla warfare. We used to get up at four o'clock in the morning and we'd be going to bed at 12 at night. But I took up the challenge. I love it. Because if you were a bit weak in any area, that really toughened you up and hardened you up. Throughout his life, the communist government in Cuba seemed to give to Nicholas and at crucial times take away from him. For example, the giving. Nicholas was born in 1958, when Castro and the Communists were making their final push at deposing the US-backed Batista regime. Under Batista, black peasant families like Nicholas's were second-class citizens. Under the Communists, they were given the chance of education and advancement. Nicholas was good academically, so he got into university to study sports science. In university, Nicholas tried basketball. He's tall, about six foot three, but the basketball didn't work out for him. Then one day, he was at home on the farm and he looked at his arms. They were strong. He reckoned he could be a good boxer. 
However, his first fight was a disaster. He learned very quickly that strong arms were no good without a boxing brain. I was taller and looked like I was going to hammer him, but that didn't work out like that. He was clever. I couldn't hit him, you know. So he beat me and I just had a big headache the following day, you know. <laughs> so. After that painful lesson, though, Nicholas developed his physical and mental techniques. He became Cuba's number two light heavyweight and he fought in the World Championships in 1981 when he was 23. In boxing, Nicholas had picked a sport of which Cuba was particularly proud. The country put plenty of resources into its boxers. For example, in this video from Jerry Coyle's phone, Nicholas is showing his three friends from Mayo, the residential boxing academy for the local province. So they, they come here, they stay in the dormitories and they eat here as well? Yes, that's correct, yeah. They are here full time. Do they work? They have their job, but the government grants them a license. Once they qualify to be here in the provincial team, so they don't have to go back to their job unless they retire from here or low performance, and then they have to go back to their job. But if the Cuban state gave resources, it could also take away chances. Nicholas was all set to compete in the 1984 Olympics in the US, but he knew that Cuba wasn't going to send a team to those Olympics. The United States had boycotted the 1980 Olympics in Moscow, so the Soviets boycotted the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. When the Soviet Union pulled out, so did their communist bloc allies like Cuba. When he knew he wasn't going to box in the Olympics, Nicholas retired from competitive boxing. But boxing gave Nicholas confidence to go toe-to-toe with another opponent in his personal life, the man he had grown up fearing, his father. What happened was this. Nicholas's parents had separated. His mother had moved out of the family home, leaving behind some belongings. Nicholas's father wouldn't let her retrieve them, saying they weren't hers to take. And what did I do? I put a big machete with the string around here in my waist. I was not going to attack my dad with a machete. I took his cart and the oxen. And he says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to my mom. was all this. You're not. I'm going. And that's the first time in my life and the only time that I stood up to my dad. And I left with all the thing. And that was amazing. Because I standing up to my dad. Not at all. And got to my mom and got everything unloaded and went back to my dad and faced him and said, Dad, I love you, but I love my mom also. I couldn't say anything. In 1986, Nicholas married Christina, an orthopaedic surgeon. They went on to have a daughter and a son. Nicholas was in his late 20s and was lecturing in sports science. But having taken away his chance to box in the Olympics in 1984, the Cuban government gave him an opportunity to contribute to the Olympics in 1988. He was going to help train an Olympic team, but not in Cuba, Instead, almost 7,000 kilometres away. In 1987, a year before the Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, the Irish Amateur Boxing Association asked the Cubans for a trainer to help prepare their Olympic team. The Cubans sent Nicholas. The sport he was sent to help was at a pretty low ebb in the late 1980s. Irish boxers had won just two Olympic medals in the previous seven Olympic Games. It was an amateur scene, completely amateur. 
Brandon O'Connor of the Irish Amateur Boxing Association. They just went to the gym, got the boy skipping, got the boy work on the bags, work on the punch ball. The word nutrition or mental strength or psychology wasn't part of the agenda there. When Nicholas arrived, there was a training camp set up in a Kerry hotel. Foreshadowing the Saipan fiasco in Irish soccer, the camp was far from ideal. There was a dance floor and in there we had a ring and a couple of bags hanging from the frame. That's all we had. Speaking to Pat Kenny on Radio 1 years later, Nicholas described what he had to do. I went out to the field and I found a tractor tyre and tied him up and found a sledgehammer and found a metal thing, a metal bar and got a fella to cut it for me in sections so I could make dumbbells out of it and the sledgehammer to work cardiovascular and strength exercise with the boys. So we made something out of it, but I just couldn't believe that's what all he had. But as well as inventiveness, Nicholas also had something else. He had a sense of humour, which was huge for Irish people. Brandon O'Connor. He had a light touch in the sense of he never bullied anybody. He was never majorly negative with anybody when he gave them advice or when he wanted to correct them. He did it in a nice, civilised, friendly way. He would demonstrate things over and over. If he didn't get it right, he would demonstrate it over and over again. Wayne McCullough from Belfast was one of the boxers in the squad. He worked you hard. So that, to me, was like, I love this. He knew when I wanted to work even harder, he would try to calm me down a little bit. Nicholas had to stop me from training. You know, we were in Spain once and I was climbing at the window to go running again and he, he caught me. <laughs> the Cuban trainer brought new ideas from sports science to Irish boxing. These great things we have in the body, emotions, and get a lot of strength because we get emotional in the right way. I remember... It was 1992 for the first time I managed to convince the authorities there in boxing to bring in a psychologist with the team. She spent a number of years in Japan and helped a lot Michael Carruth by doing meditation, just teaching him to breathe right and to relax. Ireland started winning international competitions. The boxers were preparing to go to Seoul for the 1988 Olympics. But having given Nicholas the chance to finally go to the Olympics... The boxing world snatched it away from him. The Irish boxing authorities decided that the Cubans would be unhappy to see one of their own in the opposite corner during the Games. Well, Cuba boycotted the Games in 1988. Nicholas talking to Pat Kenny on RT Radio 1. And they didn't want to risk taking me over there and then something was going to happen to me because the Cubans didn't go and there was a a little bit of politics involved there, but... It happened that some of the other Cuban coaches that were with other countries, they travelled and there was no problem. Nicholas could only watch the Irish boxers on TV and see them finish the Olympic Games with no medals. And I certainly believe that in 1988 that I didn't travel with them after being in the training camp. Those boys could have done better. But he determined to aim for the next Olympics and be better prepared. Señoras y señores, the next Olympics were in Barcelona in 1992. Six Irish boxers qualified, and one of those was Belfast bantamweight Wayne McCullough. Center of the ring, the two boys again. In the semi-final, McCullough was up against North Korean Lee Kwan Sik. Right and left from McCullough, right hand from the Korean. Nicholas was in McCullough's corner, and he knew Wayne was in trouble. I said to Wayne McCullough, you see this fella? You cannot box him. 
He's more, he's much stronger than it. But you cannot box him. The color athlete in what is an absolutely he is massively clever at cutting you off and getting on top of you. And you cannot fight it. And you know what we're going to do? The minute he comes to cut you off, step in. Crash. The color throws left of the body, takes the left of the face. And back up again. So he can't settle. The color comes after his man again. Left and right. A super last half minute from the champion of Ireland. McCullough goes over to Nicholas Cruz in the corner, gets congratulations. Here's the decision. Win McCullough! Win McCullough by 21 to 16. McCullough came away from that fight with a silver medal, but also a broken cheekbone. You see the, the grimace of pain on the face of Wayne McCullough and that eye causing him all sorts of problems. In the final, McCullough was fighting the Cuban Joel Casamayor. The pain was so intense, he was ready to give up. But to say that final, Nicholas got me through it. And Nicholas gave me that assurance and belief that I could still win that fight. He believed that I could still pull this off, and I almost did. Well, Nicholas Cruz just having a good look at that eye. The Cuban Casamayor, is a, he told Nicholas, another minute in the fight, he wouldn't last it. Wayne McCullough has got a silver. As you know, Ireland came away from the Barcelona Olympics in 1992 with two medals, both boxing, gold and silver. There's a great Cuban coach, Nicholas Cruz, who pants Casamayor. And in fact, Michael Cruz's gold was actually won from a boxer from Nicholas's home country of Cuba, a fact that was mentioned back home by none other than Fidel Castro. When the president was making one of the speeches welcoming the Cuban athletes from the Olympics, he mentioned my name of the work that I did. He said, though we lost against Ireland, we are very proud that in the corner, in the opposite corner, was a Cuban. You know, here is my man in the country talking about my job. But the sport council interpreted it differently. That's the Cuban Sports Council. The next Olympics in 1996 was in Atlanta, in the United States, Cuba's old enemy, a country that had blockaded Cuba since the early 1960s. The Cubans had a point to make. They wanted to win as many medals as possible. Nicholas had helped the Irish take a medal from Cuba and Barcelona, and that wasn't going to happen again. Nicholas and the other Cuban trainers working abroad were told to come home. I was in the blacklist, that's it, I was in the blacklist. Once back in Cuba, he missed being a national coach. At home, he became preoccupied with providing for his two children and his wife, Christina. She actually complained that I was not kind. I was caring and making them happy, and I will do the biggest madness in order to make sure there was food at home. In the mid-1990s, Nicholas was in his late 30s, still teaching sports science in the university, but still itching to go abroad to earn money for his family and to head to another Olympic Games with boxers. Then, in 1996, just months before the Atlanta Olympics, Nicholas got his chance, through a series of seemingly random events. The first of these was in the university where he was teaching. One day, he sat down in the office of a secretary of his department, just chatting away. And then all of a sudden, click, something clicks on her, and she said, Hold on a second, there's a fax that came here from Ireland. They were looking for you. And they were looking for you last year as well, in 1995. And they didn't want us to give you that fax. Then she gave him the number of the Irish Amateur Boxing Association and he put it in his wallet. 
Then in February 1996, Nicholas was getting ready to fly to a conference in the US territory of Puerto Rico. As he was about to leave the house for the airport, he was saying goodbye to his wife and two children when he made an announcement. I said to Christina, if I don't come back, I'll be going to Ireland. I don't know. Still to this day, I have no idea where that came from. She starts crying. She was bold and crying. And we hug each other. And Laura, my daughter, and my son, Nicholas, he was a year old and my daughter was seven. That was it, you know, it was tough. Communist countries often prepared for the possibility that their citizens would defect if they travelled abroad. They were accompanied by trusted minders and their movements and communications were monitored and controlled. But once Nicholas got to the conference in Puerto Rico, he struck up a conversation with one of the organisers. And then before he left, he said, if you need any phone calls, I'm going to give any phone call, anything, just let me know. And I said, oh, thank you very much. So Nicholas took him up on the offer of using their phone. He took the number out of his wallet and called the Irish Amateur Boxing Association and left a message. That if you need me, I am here in Puerto Rico. A few hours later, the Irish Amateur Boxing Association called back. We need you here to prepare the team for 96 Olympics and you have a prepaid ticket and a visa. So that was it. Except that wasn't it. The officials from the Cuban Boxing Federation found out about Nicholas's contact with the Irish Association. They withheld his passport and intimated that he would be punished for even talking to the Irish once he got back to Cuba. But the Cuban official who held Nicholas's passport was called away from the conference and he left the passport in a case among a lot of luggage in the hotel. The way Nicholas tells it, he had one chance to retrieve his own passport. So all the bags are there, loads of bags, and then I just pick one bag, and I get my hand inside the side pocket, and in the side pocket there's a brown envelope with my passport. And I just grab it, and I put it inside my sock. So that way when he came back, he realised that the passport was gone. So he came to try to uh, get it of me. He said, give me the passport. I said, I'm not going to give you the passport. Now with his passport, Nicholas was free to go. He flew out of Puerto Rico to New York. But when he got to JFK Airport, the gate on the flight to Shannon was already closed. But the official on the check-in desk was Irish. Uh, he had my passport there and he opened it. And he looks, Nicholas, by any chance you're the Cuban coach. Yes, I'm... Yeah, the Cuban coach, wow! Just, you know. And then straight away he organised and flight into Shannon and then from Shannon to Dublin. When Nicholas got to Ireland, he started training the boxers for Atlanta straight away. I knew that something good was going to happen in 1996 because those that trained with me in 1996 will remember how much work we did and their fitness and their confidence and how well they felt. In the qualifying tournament, Great Britain had only one boxer qualify. The whole of Great Britain had only one boxer qualify. We had five. There's one that I do remember, Cajal O'Grady. And when I had him in the qualifying tournament, he went against the second best boxer in the world at that weight division from France, Medi. And then what happened? We did an amazing job in the dressing room. Powerful job. He came out of the chair. He just gave him two stunning count in the first round and the French boxer was only saved by the bell. Nicholas was all set to head to Atlanta with Cahill O'Grady, Francis Barrett and the other Irish boxers. But before he could leave, 
Nicholas was told that the Irish Amateur Boxing Association had received a letter from the Cuban sports authorities. Telling them not to bring me to the Olympics with the Irish team. They had to make the decision and they say, oh, we just don't want friction with Cuba. You know, Cuba is world-renowned in boxing and, you know. He was angry and disappointed. And he got on the phone to one of the Irish boxing officials. And they said, there's potential for medals in the team. But if I'm not there with them, there will be no medal coming back. There's potential for the team. But if I'm not there, there will be nothing coming back right now. He didn't say much. He just hung up. And I knew he was pissed off. 15 seconds. Come on, inside. Despite losing the chance to go to the Olympics, on, working inside now. Nicholas went to Galway in a personal capacity to work with the boxer Francis Barrett. He was to be the first traveller to carry the Irish flag at the Olympic Games. You waste less energy, Francis, if you put all the power in the last punch in every combination rather than throwing all the punches very strong. This is from the TV documentary Southpaw. It's about Francis Barrett, made for RTE by Liam McGrath. Just be Francis Barrett. Never try to be anybody else yeah. because you're getting money, publicity, whatever. Just be Francis be Barrett. Be the same fella. Be the same fella. As ever, Nicholas concentrated on the mental as well as the physical preparation. And just commune yourself with nature. You know, just relax yourself. Stop thinking. Still not settled in, still can't get beyond the big... Despite Nicholas's last-minute help, Francis didn't get as far as he'd hoped in Atlanta. He's trailing on points by a considerable margin now, towards the end of this second round. Again, an Irish boxing team left a world-class coach at home while they went off to the Olympics. Again, Nicholas watched the boxers on TV and again they came home with no medals. But Nicholas lost out on more than just the trip to the Atlanta Olympics. He was now stranded in Ireland. He had abandoned his life in Cuba. His wife was high up enough in Cuban society that his family wouldn't be punished, but defectors could not return home for five years. That was a traitor. That was considered a traitor. A traitor in Cuba and a foreigner in Ireland. And being black, that brought abuse on the street. Somebody shouting to me, Packy. Added to all of that, Nicholas was out of work. Although the Irish Amateur Boxing Association had leapt into action by providing him with a ticket and a visa to come to Ireland, they actually had no paying job for him. Nicholas was now stuck in exile in Ireland in 1996 with no job and no home. This is Brandon O'Connor of the Irish Amateur Boxing Association. Our difficulty was the pathetic funding we were getting. The Boxing Association did provide Nicholas with accommodation of sorts in the National Stadium on the South Circular Road in Dublin. He was looked after all the time to the best of people's ability. Nicholas recalls that for the five years while he was living in the National Stadium, he was sweeping floors and pulling pints. They would give him those little things to be doing so he wouldn't be stuck in his room, you know, looking at the wall. Wayne McCullough says that that was shabby treatment for an Olympic coach. If I owned a bar, I'm going to brush the floor myself. If I owned it, I'm going to pile pints. But Nicholas is a boxing coach. And I say, if he defected to our country and was the Olympic coach for our country, she did not have been looked after, you know what I mean? It wouldn't be any way demeaning whatsoever because people had complete respect for him, all he had done. 
No, that wouldn't be a case at all that was demeaning to him. Brandon O'Connor. And of course, the stadium was not a proper home. At one time, one of Nicholas's friends from Mayo Boxing, Joe Lavelle, had to help out. He drove to Dublin with a camp bed for Nicholas to sleep on. As you can imagine, being away from your own country with no job and no home drags you down. And that was true for Nicholas. He became seriously depressed. And I used to stand at the back door and look at the trees, at the two trees at the back of the ringside club in the stadium. And uh, till I picked a branch, which was the one that I decided was going to take my life. Nicholas, speaking with Pat Kenny years later on RTE Radio 1. And Wayne McCullough, the Olympic boxer, can understand how things were. I've been there. For some reason, my wife woke up in the middle and caught me in the garage ready to do it. So if you keep it all built up inside, then especially if he's on his own, and you're not talking to anybody, you can just get to that point where your mind just says, you know what, it's, it's not worth it anymore. It's a crazy thing. It's not about being selfish. It's about just thinking you're better off not being there. Day after day was the same thing. C- can you no. isolate the, the, the moment when you said, I'm not going to do this. I've decided to choose life, not death. Well, I was in town and I found this shop there in Temple Bar behind the central bank, selling all these Buddhas and everything, but I was just at the time looking to cling onto anything that could give me a little bit of, you know, sign of life. And then I brought it back to, the, to, the, to my place there at the back of the stadium. Then one day, a Shaolin monk came to the stadium to work with some boxers. Nicholas showed him around. And the monk happened to see the Buddha and asked me through the interpreter if I knew about, you know, how to do the ritual and the stuff, and, and I, and I said, well, I have no, no idea on any of that. So he taught me, and then uh, I went to that, and I found all that very interesting, and then uh, I started doing that every day, and still to this day, the Buddha is in front of me with all the offerings and fruits and candles and incense, and that's all to me now. And, and it was just like the monk was sent by God. Finally, in 2000, four years after they encouraged Nicholas to come to Ireland, the Irish Amateur Boxing Association received funding for a full-time position. Nicholas was appointed to the job. However, it paid less than £15,000 a year, and unknown to Nicholas, most of this went on emergency tax. When he finally realised, years later, the tax office told him he was too late claiming the rebate, and he only got half of what was owed to him. While he was living at the stadium, Nicholas got part-time work, teaching in prisons and working as a bouncer. All the time he was sending money home to his family in Cuba. And it wasn't all that bad, because he discovered through the part-time work there that he really loved teaching prisoners. Tonight we welcome the world's greatest athletes and their supporters to Sydney, Australia. In his boxing life, 2000 was the year of the Sydney Olympics. Nicholas got to go, but only one boxer qualified, Michael Roach from Cork. Today, our only boxer, Michael Roach, was well beaten by Turkey's Sirat Karagolu, 17-4 on points. There was no argument with the decision. The better man on the day won. He was a better man. I know from the start, I was seven points down after the first round. I just wasn't down. I felt great. I felt confident going in. It was nobody's fault at the end of the day but my own. But that's boxing. Michael Roach speaking after his defeat. What he could have said was, that's Irish boxing. Because years later, Michael Roach said that he decided to bite his tongue during that interview and not reveal the fact that when he got to Australia to prepare for the Olympics, there was no proper training camp. Again, shades of Saipan. 
This is Nicholas Cruz talking to RTE after the fight. Unless we become professional at this, we won't be able to, to win at this level. We need to be professional. That professionalism did come, but without Nicholas. Irish Boxing set up a high-performance unit. It was headed up by a man Nicholas had chosen as his assistant, Wexford man Billy Walsh. He went on to preside over a golden period of Irish boxing, featuring fighters like Paddy Barnes, Kenny Egan and Katie Taylor. By then, though, Nicholas had left the national team. He was fed up with the poor pay and he decided to do a course in computers where he thought he might make better money. In his personal life, things were also moving on. He was allowed to return to Cuba to visit his family, but he didn't stay. His marriage had ended and his home was now in Ireland. Anyway, as a defector, he still wasn't trusted by the Cuban government and after his visit, his wife had to submit a report to them. That I didn't influence the kid or try to talk them out of the system where they were. What they call is diversion, ideological diversion. In Ireland, he had met a woman and had had a baby with her. And although he and his child's mother are no longer together, Nicholas is still in touch with his son, who's now in college. The computer course paid off and he was offered a job in Mayo. But at the same time, a job in the Midlands prison in Port Leash came up. He opted for the prison work and is still there. He teaches Spanish, boxer size and yoga. Trying to keep your upper body perpendicular to the floor. Right, leaning back a little bit. Drop shoulders and then keep hands shoulder high. This is quite a scene. It's a classroom in the prison. All the chairs are stacked away. Lower hands slowly. There's a prison officer at the door. The prisoners, all male, are on yoga mats in a semicircle around Nicholas. You may always use a wall on this one. Bend left knee. He's contorting himself effortlessly in a way that you imagine shouldn't be possible for a tall, muscular man. And then try to then to even the hips. He's gentle and encouraging with the prisoners. Well done. Well done. It's very challenging, but it's very good. Yeah, that's good. That was excellent. If a person's house tells you something about themselves, this is Nicholas's. At one end of the living room is a large TV, and when we visited, he was watching a documentary about Cuban history. That was Bola de Nieve, the very famous pianist. Nearby are a piano and a guitar. In the corner is an aquarium. My other friend here in the house. Fish. It's time for the dinner. There's a painting of Jesus and a little shrine to Buddha. And in almost every room, Nicholas has a picture of his mother. The last thing to say about Nicholas's house are the smells. They're faintly of incense and other exotic aromas. One of the smells came from this, a little piece of burning charcoal wrapped in leaves. This is called bakur. You go with this around the house, the house feels very fresh. Oh, oh just... Mantras. Oh. Nicholas uses them for boxers. If, for example, a boxer was too concerned about his opponent and things, you know, tension builds up. And he uses them himself. I'd been depressed for a long, long time. Depressed, left the family behind, things went wrong, ended up with nothing, did that. You know, I've been fighting a long time. 
I just... The other wonderful smells in Nicholas's house were from exotic cooking, meals made then both by Nicholas and his girlfriend, Domenica. She's from Eastern Europe, but had been in Ireland for years and divided her time between Nicholas's home in Portlaoise and her work at the other end of the country. And the kitchen presses were full of her ingredients. It's all the spices and all the condiments. I'll come in there for the front door. I can feel the smell of the door. I was just like, wow, I was putting way on. She's so good at that. Nicholas felt that having Domenica in his life was helping him to get on an even keel. Having a partner it means a lot. When I have someone to share my problem with, then that's a relief. Then I can talk and she's such a nice person, you know. And then uh, for someone to ask me where I met her, I say, well, God sent her from me, you know, she's my saviour. And then we have a lot of similarity in terms of, like, we don't have family here. You know, I have a son in Dublin, but he's busy. He's in the college, he's busy, and I don't want him to, to get contaminated. So whenever we communicate and phone or I meet him, Obviously, I have to show the best part of me, you know. When Nicholas talks about contamination, he means the householding negativity, his persistent depression and anxiety, he believes, lives on in the place. But the house is also a refuge because being black, he says, means he doesn't always feel comfortable out and about. Little issues in my head of my colour of the skin. You know, I don't want to go over there to be causing people to be upset because they... They are not very familiar with foreigners, so uh, better go to the house. And then in the house was again, pick up again the thoughts. And sometimes all of this overwhelms him. On one occasion, he was alone and he called Jerry Coyle, his friend from Gisala Boxing Club in Mayo. He rang us up and he was resistant to everyone's help. He didn't let people into the house for a few weeks. Myself and Joe headed from Mayo. We got to the house. He was reluctant to let us in. I convinced him to let us in. He let us in. We let him talk. He told me about his mother. He wanted to go back to see his mother. That was part of his problem. He hadn't seen her for six years. She was 98 years old. He hadn't seen his children in six years. And he started to listen to us, and we got him treatment. And I made him a promise that we'd bring him to see his mother and we'd go with him. Hence the trip to Cuba with the three Mayo men. And the most important part of the trip, Nicholas meeting his family. First, he called to see his adult children, and they had no idea he was coming. <laughs> and then there was his granddaughter he has never seen before. Nicholas's daughter Laura spoke to Jerry Coyle. Uh, I think this is a surprise for me. This uh, experience is very <laughs> important to my daughter. Okay, so he surprised you today, did he? Yes, big surprise. <laughs> you close with your dad? See, yes, yes. Every day uh, he and I talk. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> then the next day, Nicholas headed to the nursing home where his mother lives. And again, a surprise visit. In the video, his mother, a small woman, is sitting on a couch while Nicholas, all six foot three of him, is leaning down to her. She's hugging him tightly while cradling his head on her shoulder. 
Porque no pudimos, no pudimos ver anoche, nosotros éramos anoche. Then Nicholas sits down beside his mother on the couch and they hold hands. Now we are all together, one for all. Was he the favorite son? <laughs> the most favorite and the, and the youngest of them all. Boldest. <laughs> so just this little moment, uh, just to relax myself, you know, and to be in contact here with my mom, just body to body, just to feel it there, yeah, you know. Back in Ireland after the Cuban trip, Nicholas was feeling better and he was back to the yoga in the prison. Inhale, Exhale. And back to occasionally training youngsters. In this case, in Rochford Bridge Boxing Club, County Westmead. But back in his house, things had changed. He and Domenica are no longer together. He's alone again. Although her cooking things are still in the kitchen. The aprons are still too. They haven't been moved from where it is. And all the spices in the kitchen haven't been moved. When Nicholas talks about what happened in his relationship, he starts drifting off, both physically and verbally. I don't know what happened. What happened? It was a, the biggest disaster. It was sad. The, the only thing he's sure of is that he wants to continue to struggle. So, it's been difficult, emotionally, physically, in every way I've been difficult, but I'm still here, alive. That's why I'm still fighting. And the fact that Nicholas is still fighting hasn't gone unrecognised. Wayne McCullough, who he trained to a silver medal in Barcelona, is now a trainer himself working in Las Vegas in the United States. Wayne is preparing new fighters for the professional scene and he's asked Nicholas to be by his side. I said to Nicholas the other day, we'd love you to be part of the team. And hopefully you'll be in the corner with me in the pro ring as well. When Nicholas said to me, I'd be honoured. And he is honoured, but Nicholas won't leave the prison work. He finds it liberating. In my work, there are people that are down, in worse condition than myself. I give people encouragement, and you give a smile to the people you work with, and that helps me. Documentary on one, Nicholas Cruz Hernandez Still Fighting, was produced by Bill Tyson and Ronan Kelly. The narrator was Ronan Kelly. Until next time, thanks for listening.